This is the word of our holy God. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. For horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. The blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. But the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will jaw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Sends the reading of the Lord's word this morning. Let's pray and ask him to bless it. Mighty Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you teach us, for what you have spoken long ago, and yet you speak it to us today. Father, may you show us yourself. May you reveal who you are. May you remind us of what is true, of what you have done, and our certainty of what you will do in the future. We thank you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So outside of Reformed circles, uh, there tends to be a common accusation, I guess, towards those who are confessional. And this accusation is that catechisms and confessions are not biblical, they're stifling, they're oppressive, they're divisive, they are dogmatic, they're not actually the product of of faith, but confessions and catechisms are are bad, essentially. Um, You'll hear things like, well, I don't need catechisms and confessions, I just need Jesus. I don't need all that fancy stuff, I have the Bible, I can just read the Bible. But what happens when the Bible starts to teach us a confession. When the Bible itself starts to show us, sometimes in song form, a confession of faith. 
I think that's what is happening in Exodus 15. We are, we are seeing and hearing the confession of faith of Israel. This passage is, is a confession in song form. It's a hymn of praise to the saving God, but it's also catechetical. It teaches those who sing it who God is, what he's done, who they are, and where they're going. And the words of this song in Exodus 15 will echo throughout Israel's history. This is not the first time that this song will show up. It will be referenced multiple times throughout Scripture. Um, Like the hymns that we have, right, that mean a lot to us, like A Mighty Fortress is Our God or Amazing Grace, hymns that we know by heart that we have sung over and over again, words that come back to us in times of trial. This was a song that came back to Israel over and over and over again, every generation. This song doesn't appear out of nowhere. Confessions of faith almost always show up as a response to God's salvation. Because God's people confess when they're saved. When they see what God has done, when they experience that, they can't help but confess out loud. And if you remember, Exodus 14 was all about the salvation of the Lord. Exodus 14 was where God defeated Pharaoh. God provided a path through the waters for Israel. He baptized Israel in the Red Sea, and they emerged, as Exodus 14 ends, they emerged believing God. The people that entered the sea in Exodus 14 were ones who doubted, who accused God of being a liar and of attempting to murder them, and they emerged from the Red Sea It says in Exodus 14, believing God. In other words, the salvation that they experienced changed them. And it changed everything. And this song is Israel's confession of that salvation. And it's their hope. It shows us their hope for the future. So to summarize, this this song is about God's salvation. It's a song of confession, and it's their song of their secure hope for the future. So we'll first look at the song and how it shows us God's salvation, what it teaches us and those who sing it. Uh, the song opens in verse 1 with Moses and Israel singing, I will sing, saying, sorry, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he's thrown into the sea. Now, this first section, verses 1 through through 12, notice how it's not about how God provided a path through the Red Sea for Israel. Instead, it's all about what God has done to Pharaoh. Verses 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. Uh, Verse 5, they went into the depths like a stone. Uh, Verse 10, if you jump down, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Verse 12, you stretch out your hand, the earth swallowed them. These these first few verses are all about God's complete destruction of Israel's enemies. So why? Why is that important? Why is Israel so so fixated on the fact that God has defeated Pharaoh? I think there's a couple of reasons. The first is that we're starting to, Israel is starting to learn who is God. What is he like? What does he do? What kinds of things does he do in this world? 
In other words, if you want to know who God is, you don't have to look much further than what he did to the the Egyptians. Because if you follow this God, not only will he fight for you, but he is the God who wins so decisively that the enemy will never be able to pursue you again. And that's why in verse 3, they sing, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. God is a warrior who fights for his people. That's important because it wouldn't be very comforting to learn that God was a good warrior, but not a great one. God is pretty good at fighting, but not amazingly good at fighting. That wouldn't be comforting. It wouldn't be comforting to learn that God usually wins. It's much more comforting to learn that God always wins. But not just that God always wins, but when God decides to save, he doesn't go halfway. He doesn't leave the job unfinished. He doesn't leave any enemies alive to continue to torment you. So the first thing we learn in these first 12 verses is that God's salvation is complete. Because there is no sense in these verses that Pharaoh or the Egyptians are coming back from this defeat. Because they're cast into the sea. They sink to the bottom. All the walls of the water collapse upon them. And then in verse 12 where it says, you stretch out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. That's a picture of descending into the underworld. Death, destruction, eternity. God does not go halfway when he decides to save his people. His salvation is complete and utter. And his enemies do not live. So what does this mean for us? Could we sing this song, even though Pharaoh and the Egyptians are, are removed from us? We could. We could sing this song very easily. All you have to do is substitute sin and death wherever it says Pharaoh. Because that is how complete a victory Christ has won on the cross for us. And that is why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Because we're not waiting for a future salvation. You are saved. You're not holding your breath anxiously hoping that God will forgive you of your sins. God has forgiven you. And not because you have earned it or because you have done anything, but because on the cross, Jesus took care of your sins by casting them into the depths of the sea. That as surely as Jesus Christ died, that is how sure it is that your sins are forgiven. And that death itself has been conquered because Jesus rose from the grave. That is our song, because God's salvation is complete. He doesn't go halfway. He doesn't leave your enemies alive. But your sin and death are taken care of completely. Which leads us to our second observation of God's salvation. It is complete, and you had nothing to do with it. Where in these verses 
do you see anything about Israel cooperating with God's salvation? Or adding to it? Or contributing to it in any way? Nowhere. And that's because Moses and Israel understood that God's salvation is by grace alone. That these verses are all about what God has done. And not a single verse about what Israel has done. Which means two things, right? If salvation is by grace alone, that means two things. That means, first, that God alone did it. As verse 11 says, they sing, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? In other words, who else could do this? Nobody. Nobody is like God. Nobody can save like God. Nobody can do the things that God does. Which means that if we were to believe that we could somehow take part in our salvation, we are saying that even if it's just a little sliver, we're like God. But we know we're not. No one is like God. Only God can save. Which leads us to the second thing that salvation by grace alone means. If only God can do it, how do we get him to do it? We can't. We don't deserve salvation. Because think of Israel before God split the Red Sea. Were they the picture of faith? Were they uh, righteous people? Were they strong and numerous and powerful and wealthy and deserving of God's favor? No. They were doubting. They were weak. They were scared. And they accused God of being a liar. And they said that God has led them into the wilderness to kill them. That's what they were sure and certain was going to happen. That's not the picture of faith. It's not the picture of people that deserve to be saved. And yet, God did. Why? The answer, we know it, but it still is not going to make sense. God did it because He loved them. That's salvation. By grace alone. Only God can do it. And he did it purely out of love. He did it for a bunch of people who didn't deserve it. And he didn't go halfway and wait for them to make up the rest. He didn't save them most of the way. And then say, okay, you have to finish this part. And thank God that he didn't. When God saves, he saves completely. And he saves by grace. And by grace alone. Which leads us to our second point this morning. In the face of such a salvation, what can we do except confess it? There's nothing left for us to do in our salvation. There's no more works that we have to add in order to be saved. 
all we can do now is, is confess him and praise him and sing to him. And that's the whole purpose of this song is to show God's salvation and then to sing it and confess it. That's why verse 1 says, I will sing to the Lord because he has triumphed gloriously. Because he has won salvation, I will sing to him. Notice that the first thing he says is, this confession is primarily to God. I will sing to the Lord. It's easy to think that the primary audience of our confession is other people. We we confess out loud for the good of others or to show others how much we love God. But we're not the primary audience. Other people are not the primary audience. Take, for example, when someone comes to profess faith up front. Are they up front to confess to you, the congregation? Are they confessing to God with you acting as witnesses? Or take our singing. When we stand and sing, are we singing to each other? Or are we singing to God? And if we're singing to God, that means it's not about how well we sing. It's not about how well we hit every note. It's not about what other people think of our singing. We sing to God because he has triumphed gloriously. We sing and confess to him because we've been saved. Because our confession is an act of worship. It is acknowledging to your God, verse 2, that he is your strength, that he is your salvation. And that's why you want to praise him. That's why you want to exalt him for everything that he has done for you. That's why this song is a song of confession to the Lord. But this confession has two secondary functions. If the first function is to worship God, there's two secondary functions to confession. First, we confess in singing and in confessions and in prayer. We do it because it guards us against the lie that you could save yourself. Confession guards you against the lie that you could save yourself because imagine what a hymn would sound like if it included how you contributed to your own salvation. Would that hymn be 100% about God? No. It would be mostly about God, and then there would be a little blurb about what you did. I take, for example, these words. It might sound something like this. Who, God who breathed me out of the dust of life with the will to trust or to run and hide. God created us with the will to trust or to run and hide is what it sounds like. In other words, how great you are, God, that you created me with the ability to choose you. That was Hillsong, by the way. Just a little bit of that is about what you do. Because we always want to sneak a little bit of our own into salvation. Whether... It's our choice to trust God, 
or it's just a little bit of our works, just a little bit of our response, just a little bit of us and our salvation. But true confession forces us to face that temptation and to call it what it is, a lie. And believing that you are like God, even if just a little bit. True confession forces us to say instead, I would never have chosen God if he hadn't chosen me first. If God had not saved me completely and by his grace alone, I would be dead. So confession, it redirects us. It reminds us. It guards us against those temptations. But there's a second reason that we confess. Because confession grounds us in our future hope. And I think that's what verses 13 and 18 are about. It's Israel's confession of their future hope. What verse 13 says is, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them, or you will guide them by your strength to your holy abode. I know the ESV translates it, you have guided them by your strength. ESV says it's past tense. But I think the song is actually being clever. This is something that will happen in the future from Israel's perspective. Right? They are still awaiting to be guided to, their, to the holy abode, which is in the land of Canaan. They're still waiting to be led to the land. And yet they can sing it in the past tense because that's how certain they are it will happen. It is so certain that God will do this for them that they can say it as if it has already happened. Because that's what hope means for the Christian. It's not baseless. It's not wishful thinking. Hope is not uh, a stab in the dark. Hope is not, well, I'm pretty sure this might happen. And I really hope it happens. For us, we actually can say with certainty that God will fulfill his promises. Because all we have to do is look at what he's already done. Verse 13 again, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. So we have every certainty that you will continue to lead us to the promised land. That's why Israel confesses what the Lord has done Because it shows them that they have no reason to doubt, even for a second. But they will. And that's why they need this song to sing and remind themselves of what's true. Because confession grounds us in that future hope. It reminds us of what has been done and reminds us that what is coming is certain. Because there will be times where we doubt. In fact, Israel is going to doubt at the end of this chapter. It's not part of our text this morning, but in the, the 22, verses 22 through 27, Israel is going to doubt God again. Right after singing this song. But that's why we confess. Because we need to remind ourselves over and over and over again of our hope. We need to remember and 
speak to our own doubting hearts of what is true. Of what God has done, of the salvation that we have. And if God has saved us completely and by grace alone, why would we believe that the future is conditional upon us? Or why would we believe that God would not hesitate to fulfill all the promises he has made? Why would God go halfway when he's already finished it? And so Israel sings of their hope in the future, and it's a twofold hope. The first hope that Israel has is that they will have safety. Notice how in verses 14 through 16, the singers confess that as surely as God defeated the Egyptians, no other enemy will be able to stand against them. The Philistines will be seized by pangs. The chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The leaders of Moab will be trembling. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away like butter. Terror and dread will fall upon all of them. They will be petrified and still as a stone. Until verse 16, till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till your people pass by whom you have purchased. Israel's certain hope is that they will be safe. Because the same God who sank Pharaoh like a rock into the sea will make future enemies as still as a rock so that they can have safety and pass by into the land. Nobody can stop them. Nobody can take away the promised land. Nobody can delay them. And whose strength guarantees this safety? It's verse 13 again. You will guide them by your strength to your holy abode. We can sing this song too. Because even as we look back out of the salvation we have, we are also looking forward like Israel was to a future hope. We're looking forward to a promised land where we will dwell in God's holy house. And we have every hope that, and every certain hope that we will be safe, that we will get there safely because God's strength guarantees it. For as surely as Jesus died and rose again, as surely as we have been saved by grace alone, we will receive the promised inheritance by grace alone. But the future hope is not just getting there safely. It's also the place where they're going. What awaits Israel? Verse 17 and 18. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Israel's hope, their certainty is that they will be planted on God's mountain, never to be uprooted again. They've been a people of of transition, always living in someone else's land. And for the last 400 years, they have lived as slaves in Egypt. And now God is promising them a home that they get to call their own a place where they will never be uprooted. And not only that, but they will be in God's house. 
which means they will get to eat at God's table. They will get to live in his presence. They will get to enjoy his company. And it will be God's sanctuary, which means it will be safe. It will be secure. No one will be able to take it away. They will never lose this promised land. And there, God will reign forever. Not a long time. Not a thousand years, give or take. But forever and ever and ever. Which means Israel, even though they are looking forward to the physical land of Canaan, they are even looking more in the future than that. They're looking forward to where they will live forever with God where they will be ruled over by the warrior king who protects them and who has saved them. And when we are continually confessing these things, when we're continually reminding ourselves of this hope, this world and everything in it and all the sufferings and all the trials and all of our failures, all of it seems small and insignificant. Because in comparison to what we are looking forward to, this world cannot compete. So when we confess, we're reminding ourselves of what God has done. We're worshiping God, and we're grounding ourselves in our future hope. Grounding ourselves in the fact that this world is not our home. We're looking forward to something better. God's house. So confess to God. Make your life one of confession. Sing to God. Pray to God. Read God's word. Especially when you doubt. Especially when you feel those temptations either to include yourself in your own salvation or to doubt that God will do what he said he'll do. Confess. Come back to what is true. And we see before us this morning another example of the Lord reminding us of what's true. Because through the bread and the wine, we see everything that we just learned through the song. We see the salvation of the Lord. We see that it's completed because Jesus Christ gave up his whole body and his blood and that our sins are forgiven. And it was not our doing. It was by grace alone. But the supper also points us forward to our future hope. The supper also proclaims that we are looking forward to a wedding feast of the Lamb in the new heavens and the new earth, that we will get to the promised land where we will be in God's house forever. And it is so certain that God will do it that the supper is like a little sliver, a little taste of what's to come. Because God knows we'll doubt. And so he has given us this meal 
to bolster us, to remind us, to teach us, and to ground us in everything that he has done and everything that he is. So I'd like to invite the elders forward and Pastor Brett so that we can taste of this feast. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for everything that you've shown us and taught us. And Father, we ask that you would help us to make our lives a living confession of everything that you have done for us, of your complete salvation, of it being by grace and not by us. And Lord, may we sing to you, not just in worship, but every day. And may we go to you when we doubt. May you teach us these things over and over and over again, Lord, until we come to that promised land. We thank you and we pray that all this would be true through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.